For the lesson, my name is Greg Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. If I don't know you, please continue to eat. And uh, if you have a Bible near you, uh, please turn to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're, li- we're going to look at the whole of uh, John 2, but I'm only going to read the first 12 verses, and then uh, we'll come to the rest of it as we go. John, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask this afternoon, this cold and rainy day, that you would, you would sow seeds of faith and belief in our hearts, that we would encounter Christ Jesus through his word, and that we would come to see through his power, through his miracles, uh, that we would come to a greater degree of faith. Uh, Father, open your word to us, and we pray in, in Christ's name. Amen. I was a history major in college, and so I love history. I love to read it. I love to watch it. I uh, love to see documentaries. Um, and one of my areas of interest is World War II, particularly uh, D-Day. And uh, I did a, a funeral last week, and um, the individual who had passed uh, had been a veteran, and so I was looking at a lot of the, the headstones, and it was amazing how many of them um, had been in World War II. Um, I was watching a, a show the other day uh, called Surviving D-Day, and it was a reenactment, in essence, of, um, uh, of the Normandy crossing, uh, or the, the channel crossing into Normandy, into uh, France, um, as the uh, Allied powers began to make their push into Europe, uh, trying to defeat Hitler. And the, the particular individual they followed was a soldier, a young soldier, who uh, was storming the beaches of, of Omaha, the name that they gave to the particular beach. Um, and it was a fascinating study on, on why certain soldiers survived D-Day and why others didn't. Uh, and there were some things that were unique to this individual's experience during D-Day that actually probably was a, a real uh, uh, reason for his surviving. Um, he, um, he, like many others, uh, attended a, a, a dinner the night before the invasion, and uh, the brass decided to throw this, this massive banquet for the soldiers 
before they sent them out, uh, which actually turned out to be a huge mistake because they filled the soldiers full of wonderful, rich, delicious foods, uh, anything that they could want from the grill, hamburgers, hot dogs, steaks, any kind of cut of meat they wanted, and the soldiers gorged themselves. Um, And it ended up working against many of them because as they loaded in the troop transports, you've probably seen them, uh, there are these boats that uh, would would move towards the shore and then the front gate would fall onto the sand and the soldiers would rush out. Um, But there was a a narrow window of opportunity for the invasion because the weather was bad before and bad after. So the, the channel itself was very choppy. If you've ever been on a boat in choppy water, you do not want to have had a, a nice meal before that. Um, so literally hundreds of soldiers had filled themselves on this meal the night before and were violently ill on these transports. I mean, it, the, the reenactment, it, I'll spare you because you're eating. Um, but it left the men there dehydrated, uh, energyless, and this was right before they were supposed to storm this Uh, most heavily defended uh, um, beach in the world. Um, The individual they followed skipped the meal because he wasn't hungry, and he was one of the ones who who actually stormed the beach and was able to survive, partially because he had more energy, he wasn't dehydrated, he was quicker in his thinking, he was able to, to move forward because he had not been so heavily burdened by this meal. Um... We come to this wonderful, uh, wonderful chapter in the book of John where we begin to see, and I'll come back to that illustration, it'll make sense later, we begin to see the beginning of Christ's ministry. I want to look at three things this afternoon. The power of Christ, the purity of Christ, and the passion of Christ. Um, that last one, last couple of verses, tells us that Christ knows the heart of man. So my question today for you is, Christ knows our hearts, do you know his? Do you know the heart of Christ? And has that begun to transform your heart and your life? Because 1 Corinthians 2 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. But we have the mind of Christ. Today, do you have the mind of Christ? Because of his Life, death, and resurrection. Do you have the mind of Christ? And are you growing in the mind of Christ? Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in the knowledge of him? So, Christ knows our hearts. Do we know his? So the first 11 verses I read to you, we see the first miracle of Christ. We see the power of Christ. He begins to start his journey towards the cross. Um, he begins his journey towards the cross, and he begins his ministry here with the, the disciples. And we see this amazing demonstration of Christ's power. Um, he starts here, and his mother is with him. Um, and his mother, obviously, is at the wedding, so very likely she knew uh, those who were in attendance. She knew who was getting married. Uh, and there's this problem. There's a problem, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding before, that ran out of food. Um, it probably didn't affect you that much, but I'm sure the mother of the bride, the mother-in-law, were very frantic. It's not something you want. You don't want to run out of food. And at this time, you didn't want to run out of wine. It was the staple uh, beverage at the time. And so it was like running out of food today, running short on something. And so uh, Mary, taking it upon herself to try and intervene and help, she goes to Jesus and says, they, they have no wine. 
And it, it may seem like his response is a very uh, cutting and caustic, you know, if I were to call my mother woman today, my father would have words and then my mother might slap me, but you don't call your mother woman uh, because today it would be a very sort of condescending or disrespectful tone, but Christ here in the original is actually saying something more like dear lady. There's a, there's a tenderness in his voice. There's, a, there's a, a, a title that he gives her that at that time was very respectful. And so he's not chastising her. He's not putting her down. Uh, he's not saying, get away from me. He's, he's saying in a very gentle tone, and he responds, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. She's thinking one thing. He's responding to something completely different. And is that, that typical Jesus? People ask him a question, and he responds with something that is far deeper than they even had an idea that they were, in, in essence, asking. Um, and we start to see Christ's uh, re- revelation of himself here. We start to see that, that he's about to do something that begins to reveal to people who he is, but not fully. It's still veiled. It's still covered. He's not quite ready to, to, to come fully out as who he is. Um, in essence, Jesus tells his mother, no one will determine my timetable except for the father. Because he's interpreting this as his mother coming to him and saying, Jesus, it's time for you to declare who you are. It's time for you to begin your ministry. It's time for you to tell everyone you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. She may have meant that. She may not have. But Christ is in essence saying to her, The timetable for my ministry is set by my Father, not by you, and not even by me. I will do the will of my Father. And we see here this wonderful, in essence, restrained power. Christ Christ goes on and performs the miracle, but it's not the glitzy, flashy miracle that he might have done. He goes forward because he's revealing himself, but it's not quite as fully as he could have. We see this restrained power. We see this directed power that he turns the water to wine. He shows his willingness to act in obedience to his father. His father had directed him. He had set the course for his ministry. Um, And he knew that he had three more years before he would go to the cross. And we see in the first chapters of John that Jesus begins to reveal himself, but it's not as fully as you'll see in the latter half of the book of John. Because the timetable is not right. Because as soon as Jesus Christ begins to fully proclaim, I and the Father are one, you begin to see the Pharisees and the religious leaders start to ramp up their persecution and and, and seeking to kill him. So he's restrained. We see restrained power, directed power, uh, and obedience that he shows to his Father. But he does act. Isn't it interesting? Even if he says this to her... Sounds like he's turning her down, but he does act. Six great jars of, of water stood nearby, these, these earthen uh, stone jars that were probably about that tall. Um, and, and he commands the servants to fill them with water. He had a particular purpose, and he tells them to fill them with water. And each jar contained what would more than likely come to about 108 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, unless this wedding was thousands of people, this is an exorbitant amount of wine for Christ to create. 180 gallons of wine. It is lavish. It's over and above 
When Mary was suggesting turn, you know, they're out of wine, I don't know what she was thinking, but she probably was not asking, hey, can you make 180 gallons of wine for us? But Christ always responds in excess, in lavishness, in love. It's not only the quantity that is excess of, and lavish and loving, it's the quality. Because you see the rest of the dialogue that the wine is brought to sort of the master of ceremonies. And he says, everyone else serves the good wine first, and then people have drunk freely than the poor wine. As you drink more freely throughout the night, your senses are dulled and you won't know the quality from the, la- the, the less quality. But it's reversed here. Jesus gives them the highest quality at the end. And so he, he showers upon them goodness and grace and love. Matthew 7 says, If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you who ask him? We sometimes don't go to the Lord asking for what we want or need because we wonder, is he a stingy father? Is he, is he a God who's going to hold back what's really great from me? And yet all of our experience, all of the scriptures reveal to us, certainly through Christ, that, that he's a lavish God, a loving God. He showers upon us more than we can ask or imagine. So we see that here. We see this when, uh, when Christ uh, has another dilemma brought to him in uh, John chapter 6 when, when the people are hungry and all they have really to offer is this young boy's simple lunch a few loaves, a few fishes. And Jesus doesn't just create enough for everyone to have a a small piece and a little fish. Christ abundantly, lavishly creates so that there's baskets full left over. Whenever Christ acts in compassion, it is always well beyond what we could ask or imagine. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Not, you'll be a little bit thirsty, but I'll give you just enough. You will never be thirsty. You will never be hungry. So we see this wonderful way that Christ provides for our needs, but beyond our needs. How many ways can you list in your life today how Christ has lavished his love upon you? Not just giving you a smattering or a small amount, but Christ has shown you deep grace and mercy withholding from you what you deserve and giving you far more than you could ask. We see here a compassionate power. We see a power that is used in abundance and provision. He turned the water to wine. We see an act of creation. We see where Christ is taking the molecular structure of H2O and he's transforming it into something new and something wonderful. And isn't that what Christ does as well? He takes something old and he creates it into something new. He's done that with our hearts that were dead and he's given us new beating spiritual hearts. He transforms with the word of his power, with, with creative ability. The same voice that was used to call forth creation now turns water to wine. The same power that knit your bodies together in the womb of your mothers is now being used to change the molecular structure of water into high-quality wine. We see 
Christ's exertion of power and control over his creation in this story as well. And in this, the reason he did this was not just to alleviate the thirst of those who would watch. There was that. But far more, Christ was demonstrating his deity. He and the Father are indeed one. And he shows this to to the disciples, to his mother. He is beginning his march towards the cross. And he's beginning to lay the foundation for his disciples that he indeed is the Messiah. So his disciples saw his deity, his authority over the elements of creation, his merciful goodness in providing for the needs of the people. And the disciples begin to grow in their trust for him through this miracle. We see it all throughout the Old Testament that God himself uh, is a God of care. And Christ continues this motif. We see that God abundantly provides for the children of Israel as they wander in the desert. The manna abundantly, every day, providing for their needs. We see God exercising his power over creation in the plagues on Egypt. And so this God that they would have read about and heard about and been taught about as children, the God of the Old Testament, they're now beginning to see this is that God. The same God of abundance, the same God of creation. And their trust and faith in him grew. What about us as we read these stories, these wonderful accounts of Christ's power? Do, does our faith begin to grow? Do we begin to marvel at how much God has given us? If you're like me, I'm so bogged down by the cares of today that I spend very little time praising God for what he's done in the past. I spend so little time thanking him for the the riches that he's given me because I'm so concerned about what he might not give me tomorrow. When all of the evidence in the past, in the past, uh, past creation and in my life, shows me God is a God of abundance. He's a God of love. And so as we come to stories like, does, does our faith grow? As we're reminded of how much he loves his children. Are you one of his children today? Have you experienced his ultimate act of love in Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, then that's the first act of kindness God desires to give you. Mercy and grace found only at the cross. Come to Christ today and know that grace and mercy. Second thing I want to look at is the purity of Christ. We see in the rest of this chapter a couple of different things. Um, Verse 13 reminds us that, it, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Um, one of the reasons I chose this, uh, um, this passage was because of what this week is or what the, the week coming up is. Passion Week, Passover, Easter Sunday. And so Christ is entering into a time of, of Passover that was so deeply important to the, to the Jews and it was connected to the Exodus. It was connected to what happened there. But we see the purity of Christ. We see the zealousness of Christ as he moves towards the temple. What, what, what drives your zeal? What draws out of you the most zeal, the most fervor? Is it Saturday afternoon, the greatest day of worship in the United States? It's the day where the most people worship, isn't it? College football, around the nation, sitting at home in front of the TV, or at a particular football field. That's the day where the most fervor and the most zeal is, is exercised. 
And some have called it the greatest day of worship in the United States because we're excited, aren't we? I'm not condemning football. I love football. But we do. We get zealous for our team. While we might be dignified men and women at different points, when it comes to our football team, I've seen grown men who wear three-piece suits and walk very properly, paint their faces, and jump up and down with a beer in their hands, sloshing people around them because their team just scored a uh, a touchdown. Something transforms and happens. Zeal comes out in ways that may never show itself. What brings that kind of zeal and zest and fire and excitement out of you? We see in this rest of this passage that we see that Christ had a zeal for his Father's holiness. And while at a football game we might experience joy, what Christ experienced here was righteous anger. Look with me. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those, uh, he, he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it had been written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so Christ goes to the temple, a place that he had been many times before. But I wonder, as he approaches the temple this time, with his ministry beginning, did it take on a different flair, a different flavor, a different feel, knowing that in three short years he would go to the temple again, he would experience Passover in a whole new way. As that Thursday night in the upper room with his disciples, he begins to uh, reveal fully to his disciples who he is, and then the next day he would be crucified, and three days later rise again. I wonder, I just speculate and wonder, what, what was different there? What was he thinking as he, as he began to know, okay, in three short years, I will be back at this place, I will be back at this moment, But it's going to change eternity. And yet when he comes in, he has a zeal and a zest for his father and his father's house. The temple was a wondrous place where God allowed himself in the Old Testament to sort of be be bound to a geographic location. God can never be fully bound. He's everywhere all at once. But in some unique way, God allowed himself to be present in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, in a very unique way, so that, the, that God's people might know him and experience him. And so this is a different temple than that one, but uh, sort of a newly refurbished, newly rebuilt, and, and, and a temple where, where the Jews were still coming. And so anytime you have a large gathering of people, there's always someone who decides, I can make money here, right? Always somebody. And so the money changers come in because there would be foreigners coming from all around the world who needed to be able to buy things and they didn't have the right coin. So money changers were there to, to sell, in essence, new coins at a marked up rate. Or when people came in, they may not have been able to bring the animals with them to sacrifice. And so there were animals there that could be bought and that could be sold. And all of this was happening right there. It's like having a Starbucks right by the pulpit in our sanctuary. And right after Chip is done 
preaching, someone starts doling out the lattes. Who's thirsty? You've heard the word. Let's, let's, let's drink together now. And so there is this corruption. There is this, this selling going on in, in God's house, in God's temple. And Christ looks and he says, I will have none of it. I'm zealous for my Father's holiness. So much so that he, he, he takes uh, some kind of whip you know, and he begins to, to, to strike at people. Later on, we also see that he's done, he does this again, where he overturns the money changers' tables. He hates it. This is not to be a place of business or profit. This is a place of worship. It is a holy place. And we see that throughout Scripture, that God takes his holiness very seriously. When Moses approaches the burning bush, he says, take off your sandals for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Don't come in any way that you think is right. Don't come in any fashion that you think is acceptable. You come in the way God tells you to come. He's that zealous for his holiness. And so again, what are we zealous for? What are we zealous for? Christ begins to unpack for them that there's something greater about the temple than they know. It's not just historical. It's not just connected to their lineage or their heritage. It's not just a place to go uh, to be religious. That Christ begins to unfold for them. This is a place where God dwells. But he also begins to unpack for them that from Matthew 12, he says something greater than the temple is here. While in the Old Testament, God dwelt in the midst of his people, through Jesus Christ, God dwelt with his people. And then now, with Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit, and now God dwelt in his people. So there's this wonderful transformation that we begin to see, but Christ is, is bringing a fuller meaning to this idea of the temple, that God is here, and he's saying to them, I am God. And so he takes very seriously any abuses of that temple. And he confronts, he confronts those who are selling. So we see Christ demonstrating his holy passion for his father. His father's purity and holiness. Verse 17 again says, zeal for your house will consume me. And you see Christ being consumed by the zeal as he drives out the money changers. the beginning I shared that story about surviving D-Day and I said that one of the things that that weighed some of the men down was this rich lavish meal another thing that they began to find was that as soon as the door on the on the transport dropped men were just being mowed down by the German uh, um, machine guns that had been set up so men are, are beginning to see I'm not going out that way they begin to climb over the sides but they're climbing over the sides into water that some places was eight, nine, ten feet deep. And weighed down with, with, with gear that weighed, you know, close to 110, 130 pounds, just sank them straight to the bottom. The ones who could cut that gear off, the ones who could free themselves from the weight were the ones who would bob to the surface, and many were able to make their way to the shore. But the ones who had been weighed down by the, the food, the ones who had been weighed down by the gear, found themselves being mowed down and cut down or drowning just inside of the shore. And so we see here Christ's zeal for holiness, and it ought to lead us to the question, what is weighing us down today? What are we strapping into our lives that is unholy, 
What are we doing in our lives that begins to weigh us down? Do we share Christ's zeal for holiness? Do we long to have God to show us those things that are hurting us? It's a dangerous prayer. God, show me those things that are unrighteous. He will do it. And it can hurt because they're dear to us. Lastly, we see the passion of Christ. And and this is more kind of wrapping everything together. Uh, We see Christ beginning to give a little commentary. Now, Now, when he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that if he fully came out right now and proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, the king, that they would grab him and that they would bring him to the center of power and they would install him as their king. That was not his purpose. He also knew their hearts, that there were many there that are right now cheering perhaps for him, longing for for him to come out. These would be the same people, three years, who would be lining the, the entryway to Jerusalem crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And many of those would be the same ones days later who would cry, crucify him. Christ knew the heart of man. He knows your heart and he knows mine. He knows it is desperately wicked and deceitful. He doesn't give himself over to them because he knows that many of their desires was simply for gain themselves. Many of the religious leaders. He doesn't, didn't come to make people merely religious. He came to transform lives through his power, through his creative work. And we see this wonderfully here uh, in, in John chapter 2, why he came. His passion was to, to glorify his father, but his passion was for you and I that we might know his Father. He came to live and to die that we might know him. The passion of Christ for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He came to transform us, to change us. And this was his passion. This was a part of his passion. You and I are his passion. And it's why he came. So to end... um, Are we today like those who see but don't believe? There were many there who would see the water turn to wine. And even more, there would be many there who would see the loaves and fishes multiplied. There would be many there who see the the miracles of Christ. They would see it, but they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't be transformed. Will we sit before God's word today and leave it on the table? Will we be transformed today? Will we plead and ask the Lord to do that? Have we not seen the power and grace of the Lord? And yet, are we not in some way today, large or small, doubting that it's going to continue? You took care of me last year, Lord, but I don't know about this year. This year's a big year, right? Got a lot of things coming up. You were good then, but... And we doubt, and we worry, and we fret... The same God who walked us through that will walk us into the future. The same Christ who declared himself at the beginning of this ministry with the the changing water to wine, declared himself to be king over creation, who with zealous uh, righteousness drove out the money changers. He will do the same in your life. Those things that are weighing you down today, Christ will come in metaphorically in a sense and drive those things drive the money changers out of your life will you plead that will you ask that 
Let's pray. Father, we, um, we come to your word, which is a feast, and it does uh, weigh us down in a sense because we know that we are sinful, and we sit at this table and we eat of your words, and, and it is life, and yet it's death. It's life because, uh, because your spirit is working and, and bringing faith to us, but it's death because we see our sin. We know it must be killed. Father, use the, the power of Christ that we see in this chapter, that same Christ who created the universe. Please create in us hearts that, that hate unrighteousness, that love holiness. Be our God today, and we pray in his name. Amen. Good afternoon.